Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Puatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Puatic, and with me is Aaron Cameron. Today, we are going to talk about the top five key takeaways from the recently held Real Re Conference. And uh, joining us, as always, is Peter Altabelli of Yardi, who's been uh, gracious enough to join us in all our reviews of the conferences. So, Peter, welcome back today. Thanks, Adam. Great to be back again. So before we jump into the five main themes that we pulled out of the conference, Peter's going to share some stats with us about the, the REIT market. This should all be good news. So we want to start on a real high note. So, uh, Peter, why don't you uh, jump into it? Coming out of the conference, everything sounds great. I think Canada and REITs are in a very good place. They're um, healthy, strong overall. And if we take a look at some of the stats, if you look at the S&P TSX, the REIT index was 43% for the last 12 months ending August 31st of this year, right? The composite index, the total return, same period was 28% for the last 12 months, again, ending August 31st, 2021. So these are strong numbers, right? And if you look at it and say, well, let's break this down and let's look at REITs and RICOs by sector. If we take a look at the simple average uh, trailing 12 months, industrial's up 64%. I don't think that's a big surprise to anyone. Apartment REITs, 39%. Again, another major, no big surprise. But look at retail, up 42%. Office up 32%. And, you know, we're just coming out of a, a pandemic. And these are strong increases. You know, senior housing up 43%. And diversified REITs over 55%. So I think the sector is doing incredibly well. I think the REITs in Canada are well managed. And uh, it's reflecting this in, in their numbers. Overall, if you take a look at the market cap for TSX listed REITs, again, $99 billion, representing a $26 billion increase year over year. I mean, it's significant, you know, representing a 35% increase. So overall, I would say to you, the REITs are doing well in Canada. They're reflecting their performance on the TSX. And I think we're in a good spot. Peter, it's an interesting time. Let's date stamp this. I think just for context for listeners, if this is released, you know, a little bit after we record it here. So it's October 14th, 2021, of course. As COVID set in, and spoiler alert, but that is one of the sort of the themes of our top five. But as COVID set in back in sort of 2020, the REITs took a bit of a kicking, right? There was a real knee-jerk day trader type of exodus on REITs. You know, Adam and I had the pleasure of interviewing a variety of leaders of REITs just talking about how that market cap really didn't represent what was transpiring on the ground. Because as we all now know, in hindsight, aside from hospitality and some maybe smaller markets, etc., most asset classes have and are skating through without much disruption. There's some, of course. And of course, that's now being reflected. But I think it's really interesting, again, October 14th now, a couple weeks into Q4 of 2021, as you indicated, market cap, you know, market caps are up but it's $4 billion up, it's pre-COVID high. So like we're now basically returned to where we were before COVID hit. Now we're seeing sort of a optimism in investment of REITs and just the real estate market as a whole. If you use REITs as a proxy of just what the, how the industry is doing, how the industry is being perceived, I think that's really telling. Like it, it reeks of optimism to me that everybody's kind of feeling like, okay, offices are getting back to normal. Of course, you know, industrial departments always fine. Retails up 42%, like you indicated. Like there's a lot of really good positive vibes coming out of just what the numbers are telling us and just the vibe of that forum, right? Like the entire real REIT forum, everybody seemed to have just a, a layer of optimism sort of baked into the, the undertone. 
Yeah, I think the doom and gloom is over. I think the numbers are showing that. I agree. Last year was a difficult year, but we're still in the pandemic, right? As of mid-October, we're still here. We're not out of the woods yet. But the optimism on the returns and the percentage of increases, I think, shows that um, we're on the right path. I think we're on the right path, and I think it's going to get stronger as time goes on, and the REITs are in a good place, and, and the economy and real estate in general are going to be stronger in fourth quarter and in 2022 than they have been in the last 12 months. And I think we've seen a rebound. And so it's that glass half full, I think, attitude that I'm looking at with this saying it's there. And I think the glass is going to get full. Although we don't have crystal balls, to me, it's looking up. So I want to drop into our top five. uh, But before we leave this topic, I think that uh, Michael Emery and Jonathan Gitlin get notable mentions for great mid-pandemic impassioned speeches about why they're being undervalued and the market wasn't fully getting uh, what they were doing. We actually got, you know, had that same topic raised with a number of leaders in the industry, but those two really stood out from uh, our 2020 interviews in terms of uh, leaders addressing the valuations side of, of course, uh, publicly traded companies. But we'll leave that there. The top five takeaways, the first one we want to get into is uncertainties threaten the Canadian economy. There's a bit of an umbrella here because there are, you know, there's numerous things, of course, that could uh, knock us off course. The highlight reel would be COVID. You know, when are we going to see full resumption of uh, immigration? Inflation is clearly setting in. You know, and of course, you know, there's items that wouldn't make the list that uh, maybe could also knock us off course. But the real estate markets, especially REITs, the public traded and responded on on a minute by minute basis to transactions don't like uncertainty. And, you know, those three big variables are huge factors. You know, any one of those can have a meaningful impact on REIT valuations. And then by, yeah, as Aaron said, by proxy, real estate. Do we want to get into the COVID risks or can we assume that uh, most listeners have read enough headlines about Delta variants and uh, resurgent spread in other parts of the world? Like, Peter, I'll just take that real quick. Like, I agree. Like, obviously, everybody's super tired of COVID. One of the things that was interesting during the um, sort of the Economist update was just that the Delta variant hasn't necessarily pushed a fourth wave nearly as significantly as was originally thought. And that we're seeing a flattening or even a return or a, a decrease in COVID cases of the Delta variant all over the world already. I had not heard that yet. And that was recorded, I guess it was done a week ago and we're a week later. So maybe things have changed now, but it feels like just the vaccination thresholds and that race to herd immunity is starting to become a reality and not just a dream. The other item we listed here, of course, is Canadian immigration. And I have definitely lost track of the number of developers and owners of multifamily and condo I've spoken to who, you know, just cite that as the, the holy grail of resumption of, of normalcy for their world. I mean, I think we've been talking about some previous uh, podcasts, but of course, you know, everybody's relied on Toronto specifically, uh, 100,000 people a year. That's always the number cited. And we lost that and during COVID. The same thing would be reflected in other entry points to the country that see a lot of uh, immigration. 2021, we're expecting to see 401,000 newcomers, which of course would be you know well above historical norms. But in the same breath, you can't mention variants of COVID and immigration, those two are linked. If we did, again, see some variant that we hadn't thought of and be all of a sudden locked down again, we're going to lose that immigration. So of course, the planning around immigration is strong. We're going to see a big resumption of immigrants coming in and then that, of course, impacting demand for the real estate we all rely on to uh, to make our livings being uh, moved upwards in terms of pricing and rent and, you know, valuation. But there is that variable. That's why it does fall in the uncertainty column because Canadian immigration could be derailed. 
If we do deliver the numbers that are being promised by the federal government, I think that that will be a real boost to carry us through a strong remainder of 2021 and into 2022. Yeah, you know, 1% population increase over the next, or immigration is going to increase by 1% of the population over the next three years. I mean, that target is an incredibly aggressive target, which means it's an escalating target every single year as we bring more and more people in. So I think it's... um, I think it's a great positive, but you're right, Adam, it could derail if we get into lockdown, so it is uncertain. But uh, staying on the positive side of things, if we continue down the path we're on, I think we're going to be in great shape continuing into 2022. But all of this will drive some inflation, right, which brings in a little bit more of the uncertainties moving forward. And I think it's going to be something that every individual and every company is going to have to deal with in terms of uh, planning for 2021 or 2022 which is the inflation rates and how that's going to affect their business and their employees and just living and working in Canada over the next uh, 12 to 15 or 12 to 18 months. I mean, the numbers, I think, are moving quickly because we're getting new statistics out. But right now, I think they said it's 3.7%. It's the highest, 3.7% higher than June, which is 3.1%. So that's the August numbers. It was the highest since May 2011. So they, clearly the inflation is up significantly. And Peter, I think you mentioned like there's obviously a direct relationship to interest rates, because of course, any central bank or Fed has the opportunity to combat inflation with rising interest rates. However, because of the household debt, sovereign debt, whatever, the amount of debt just out there in the economy in all facets really inhibits significant rise in interest rates. So I know people are a little bit concerned about it, but back to the uh, the RBC economist was really kind of saying, listen, the projection is probably, you know, he called a neutral policy interest rate, which is kind of where they think a neutral rate would keep everything kind of in a good spot as far as just manageable debt costs, plus, you know, managing inflationary pressures of, you know, a risk-free rate of 2.25%, right? So that's the Bank of Canada sort of target for the government of Canada bonds. 2%, let's say, two and a quarter is what the Bank of Canada is saying. I mean, the RBC economist said maybe it's a little bit less, so let's call it 1.8%. Currently, it's at 1.2, right? Today, October 14th, the five-year government of Canada bonds, 1.2%. So that's another increase of 60 basis points from 1.2 to 1.8, if that's the neutral target. We're up from 0.4 eight months ago. So we're already up 80 basis points. So I don't think anybody's really freaking out that it's up from 0.4 to 1.2. I mean, some maybe out of some of our borrowers are a bit concerned that it's up, but our borrowers are up when it's are concerned when it's up a basis point or two, not 10 or 20. So I do think inflation is obviously an issue, but I don't think that it's the catalyst that's going to cause the next financial crisis that some people are concerned about. Well, Aaron, then I got to ask, because you're pervy to a lot of uh, senior management conversations, how often does inflation get uh, mentioned as something to watch for lenders specifically? Well, it's on everybody's minds. I think it's the first time inflation has really been a topic since 2011, right? Like this is the highest we've had it. So it's a decade long since it's really been anything that we've ever had to really consider or be concerned about. It's This is so tough, right? Because in the same breath, I can reference some other numbers where we have over $3 billion of savings in household savings. Like that's what you and I have in our savings account, maybe more you than me, which is ultimately 8.3% of our GDP which is the largest in basically every major economy. I can compare that to Japan, which is 5.6% of their GDP, or Germany, which is 3.2% of their GDP. So we have a massive amount of capital just sitting there. And the belief, of course, was, and Adam, you always call it the wall of capital. That's just going to come and flood the market, which, of course, would cause significant pressure on inflation. But what's curious, and this is what makes it also interesting, and why economics is sometimes a study of human behavior, 
is that it seems like people aren't just coming out and just saying, okay, well, I've saved $100,000. Now I'm just going to go drop $100,000 on new cars and jewelry and traveling. They're actually saying, no, I'm going to save that. I'm actually going to put that away. And that's my future saving. That's my retirement plan. So it's not being deployed at the rate, at the velocity that it was potentially anticipated. But that can change. Again, it's so early still, right? Like you have no idea what's going to happen. There's still a lot of fear in the marketplace. Let's just finish this whole uncertainty. You know, with COVID, immigration, rising inflation, we think it's okay. Like we think we're all getting back into the regular swing of things that the post-COVID world is looking like the pre-COVID world, you know, knock on wood. But there's still so much fear, right? And uncertainty and, and hesitancy in the marketplace and behavior and just human beings. So I'm an optimist, half glass full. I really hope that things are moving forward. But there's a lot of things that need to work out properly for that to be true. I think it was Christian Freeland that likened blowing some of those savings to be uh, you know, a patriotic act to help the economy. <laughs> I was speculating on how to motivate people to do that, but we'll leave that to the individual to decide if they want to do that or not. Number two on the list here is investors cannot afford to ignore climate change any longer. I'm sure that this would have probably made our top five list the last couple of years. This is nothing new. But I find the really interesting part about climate change and the way that corporations are pricing it has really shifted. Now, there is no longer something people do to just have on their website that they're you know, a green, responsible company. There's actual pricing involved. There's preference for investment dollars for companies that do pay attention to this. So I think that if nothing else, incentivization will accelerate addressing the climate change issue much faster than anything prior. Once you've aligned investment dollars, that can really shift momentum. But uh, Peter, do you want to jump into some of the uh, the recaps of the climate change discussion? Yeah, you know, on some of the discussions I heard, the common theme was investors are pricing it in. They're looking at it and saying the companies that we're investing in have to have a plan. They have to know what they're doing. The REITs I heard speak, a number of the uh, others that were discussing it saying they're moving their companies all into understanding it better, and not just understanding it better, but they have actions involved in becoming better stewards of the economy, better stewards of the environment. And this was all great and very positive to see. I think there's a lot of recap we can do in terms of natural disasters over the last 12 months, but I think a lot of people know what they are already. But when you take a look at certain organizations like Brookfield Asset Management, you know, the former governor of the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England, Mark Carney, is heading up the transition of investing towards a post-carbon neutral world. So this is a top player of the world. This is an individual that has got worldwide experience and now is going to run that section for Brookfield Asset Management. And that speaks volumes to what that organization wants to achieve in terms of becoming carbon neutral and becoming a better steward of the world. And same when you look at some of these other large organizations like Hudson Pacific Properties, achieved 100% net zero carbon across all its operations. And this was combining a variety of things that they do with combining energy efficiency, on-site renewals, off-site renewables, and carbon offsets, but still achieving that 100% net zero carbon. So you're seeing the move from real estate companies to do this. We just named a couple, but I'm sure the list is wide and long. And this is going to be the trend. And I think investors are going to be looking at this and companies need to really achieve these goals. So one way that people probably have felt the pain of climate change directly is if you own any investment property, which you know, I know a lot of our listeners do, is insurance cost. You know, All this has a direct cost in your insurance payments every year. And there's a variety of reasons why insurance is going up. And if you're super interested in the topic, Aaron and I did do an episode on the insurance market hardening, but 
climate change and the resulting disasters is a part of that. So if you've noticed in the last two or three years that your premiums have took an uncomfortable leap upwards, that was climate change. And that would apply to people that own a sevenplex just as much as it applies to giant REITs that have billions in assets. So it is something to think about that it is real and it is taking money out of your wallet. And I think your insurance premiums are one. Others could be like cooling systems, heating systems need to be upgraded. A lot more capex needs to be put into a building in order to hit efficiency levels. And same with some of the older real estate stock, there's going to have to be some sort of capex investment to be able to, to achieve these goals. But I think over the long run, those investments will be solid investments, a little bit risky right now, but much more solid investments into the future. And I think more and more people are going to require or want those kinds of things with inside the properties in which they work and live. Yeah, I think that's the connection, Peter. I, I mean, for anybody yeah. that's just kind of scratching their head a little bit, this isn't a simple fix, obviously, right? These are 20, 30, or you know, some of them are 20, 50 goals, right? It's not something you just kind of decide you're going to do and make the adjustment. And the companies that are doing this are obviously some of the largest institutions in the world. And of course, it's needed and it's necessary. But of course, they're all looking at it as, one, it's the right thing to do, certainly. But two, there's going to be demand for it. If there isn't already, there will be demand for it in greater numbers for tenancies in office buildings or industrial buildings or whatever, in multifamily or condo buildings for those that live there. Like These are things that people are going to want and will pay for. And so if you're not getting into the process and doing the exercise now to figure out how you get there, you can find yourself on the outside looking in. And so I think it's it's really obviously critical and it's great that we've got such great leadership going and people like Mark Carney running one of the largest institutions in the world taking that initiative. Kind of along the same vein, I guess we'll just keep moving to the next topic, which is office demand tied to return to work. Who knew you need people working in the office for there to be demand for office? But that's as kind of as simple as that sounds. That's the reality. And again, it's October 15th. So just for context, we're still all sitting in our homes. But I think, Peter, you've been going to the office a little bit more. Adam and I will be as soon as we actually have an office to go to. That's a different story. But there are lots of institutions that are slowly bringing staff back and some that are delaying it too, right? We've heard a variety of groups that have delayed it. Or Wells Fargo and Chevron came up during the real read of two institutions that had said fall that they would go back and then have delayed it to 2022. But I think a lot of companies are saying, okay, assuming we get through the colder months of November, December, potentially January, and there hasn't been a crazy spike or a fifth wave or a new variant or whatever, chances are we're going back early in 2022. And again, that's optimistic. I think that's a positive thing for the office market. Clearly, it's a positive thing. Yeah, I think if we pull in our own personal experience for our own organization in the Toronto area, we lease about 55,000 square feet of space. And that office is still pretty much empty. But our plans now are coming together where we're looking for a return by Q1 of 2022 in a voluntary manner. And so I think, and as a company, we're almost there saying, you know what, that January, February timeframe, you're right, Aaron, let's get through November, December. Let's see how things go when the colder months hit in. But if everything goes well by the beginning of the new year, and it's not like January is any warmer than December, it's not. But by then we'll have a good understanding and feel if that will work. And to target Q1, early Q1 to return is where we're looking as an organization also. And you're right, these larger companies are delaying their returns to next year. But um, I think it's everyone's in that wait and see when that transition mode, right? Vaccines are coming in. It's looking optimistic. You're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. The question is, when do you take that next step? And I think every company is going to react differently to being that next step. But I think a lot of companies are ready to take that next step back. And it's probably months. It's three or four months. It's probably not six plus months. 
And that's assuming that we continue down the path that we're on with vaccines increasing and COVID cases decreasing over time. I think you're going to see that back. And I think companies are starting to realize that the office is not going to look the same way as it did, that they have to accommodate a different work environment. They have to accommodate and attract talent. And that talent coming in is going to want to look at things differently and the space differently. And this is the time where organizations are picking up and saying, should we restructure our space? Should we redesign that space for that worker coming back to the office whenever that happens to be in the next number of months? So I think you're going to look to see some changes when everyone gets back to the office. It may not be the same old, same old. It is interesting. Some of our conversations that we're having are circular in the sense that, of course, COVID is impacting that. The fear that certain individuals are feeling about just what it's like to be back in the office and be, again, participating in society. What does that look like? I'm going to call an audible, guys. We're going to skip number four, go to number five, and we'll go back because that leads right into one of our other topics, which was health and wellness features demands by office tenants, right? I think that's part and parcel with just what that return to office looks like. There's lots of work going on, for those that are not familiar with, with the Gresby, which is a certification program, which includes a component of health and wellness. More recently, there's been a lot of adoption, the well-building standards, right, which is the International Well-Building Institution, which has really developed sort of a way of measuring how a building's health and wellness systems and functionality a stack up as far as keeping their tenants and occupants health and safety. It's not just safety, it's about health and wellness, which is like quality of the air, the way that air moves within each floor. It's really quite something that was already on people's minds. Like Gresby was starting with their health and wellness module years and years ago, but COVID has just accelerated this astronomically. We're now something that's that's front and center. And proudly, I'll say Adam and I are moving into Cadillac Fairview building at 16 York as soon as we get a tenancy or occupancy, which is well certified. And I think that's important to our my staff, to our staff, to our team, right? That's important to the tenants that they have that certification. And you're seeing quickly landlords all over the world. This is not Canada. This is a global initiative really taking this type of thing seriously. And again, it actually just speaks to the ability of our community, our real estate community to adapt and pivot quickly. We're not known as a community that can move quickly, that can do things rapidly. But here's something where very quickly we've identified a problem and found solutions to make sure that the people that use our real estate, that occupy the bricks and mortar, are being kept safe from pandemics and many other risks. Yeah, Aaron, I think you said it best. I think I would agree. And I think talking about health and wellness and the return from office are are things you need to put together. Employees coming back in are going to want and expect more. Employers are going to have to ensure the fact that the owners of their properties in which they lease space have upgraded and have moved in providing a better environment for their employees to work in. And I don't necessarily mean by desks and chairs, but I mean by air quality and access and, and all those things that make a property a meeting the well-building standards. It's great to see Canadian companies moving into this. It's likely like over 100 million square feet in Canada have rolled into the international well-building standards or institute standards. And I think that's great. I think that's a fantastic trend. Aaron, I agree. There's no question the pandemic has really spurred this on. And it went from zero to a thousand miles an hour overnight. And here, I'll pull one. This is the effective rents are, let's call it 5% more on a per square foot basis if you are well or fit well certified, fit well being a, a similar certification to well certification. People are willing to spend 5% more yeah. per square foot just so that their employees are safer as a result of that certification. 
every building is going to be well certified, right? Absolutely. If you if you have or a five percent NER added to returns to your leases, absolutely, it is a no brainer discussion internally. And that ties in nicely with the conversation we had around the greening of our industry and the, and the financial reasons for it. It's again, not don't do it just to be a good person, although that is a valid standalone reason. There's a real financial case for it. The same thing I said for addressing climate change, financial incentives will accelerate the proactive action to stop that more than anything else. So it's, it's good that you see it quantified like that. I think there was one stat, and I can't remember specifically, and I don't think this is the one that you were referencing, Peter, but it was something like, Globally, there's a million square feet of space added to well certification daily right now. Yeah. Daily. Every day, there's a million square feet worldwide added with a well certification. So it's not something that's trickling in. Like it's just en masse. Every major owner of real estate around the world is adopting this. And it's awesome to see. Good work. Pat yourself on the back, commercial real estate community, because we usually don't move very quickly. So good work, guys. (laughs) It's great to see. Do you want to jump into number five? All right. This is one that, again, I mean, it's a recurring theme, but is the demand for industrial. I I don't think there's anybody who's paid any attention to real estate at all in the last year and a half who's not aware the golden child right now is industrial. Of course, that is driven by e-commerce acceleration during the last 18 months. And it was just accelerating trends that were underway. But it's funny. I always think about when uh, apartments really had their big run-up in pricing starting around 2015, 16, 17. In major markets, you'd see these transactions that kind of just made your head scratch. And you do see them still in the current market. Apartments obviously are doing very well as well. But it's only very recently that you started seeing industrial transactions where, you know, really eye-popping figures with just new per square foot valuations you've never seen before, cap rates you've never seen before, hearing about the amount of activity that a, a prime sale will now generate. You know, and that's going to continue. We're seeing so many different groups pivot towards reweighting towards industrial. And of course, there's no reason I think that won't continue on over the next two, three, four, five years. Yeah, I look at this as saying industrial is almost like the golden child right now, right? I think it's fantastic that we've done, I mean, what a great asset class to be in. If you take a look at what the, some of the drivers are, e-commerce is accelerating like crazy. Online sales in Canada up almost 111% year over year. As of January of this year, representing you know $3.5 billion dollars in transactions. And if this is the case, they're saying for every billion in e-commerce, we need another one and a quarter million square feet of additional warehouse space just to manage it. So if Canada is on a trajectory of 2025 of about 93 billion of online spending, they're talking about net new warehouse requirements of over 40 million square feet are going to be expected. And the current activity under development won't support it. So I think this is an asset class that's going to be in front of everyone and being incredibly strong for the next four or five years at minimum. And I think you're going to see everyone want into that asset class. Well, you see it already, but I think it's going to continue moving forward. I'd be, I'm going to be negative Nelly here for a second, <laughs> guys, just for fun. And this maybe this is just my blender credit brain, so I apologize. One of the challenges, of course, though, and I know we're, we're trying to stay optimistic as the theme of this discussion, but because of that demand, the price for industrial land is starting to skyrocket. Like I think the number I saw recently is $4 million per acre. I'm not close enough to be able to do the mental math to figure out what that works out to from a proportion of your cost perspective. But what I do know is that ultimately the downhill effects are rents need to be at certain levels to achieve a return to make sense for that land, that land price. There is a threshold. At some point, rents can't go to 
25 bucks per square foot or 30 bucks per square foot, regardless of the demand supply, because occupiers have to make profit on their products and what they sell their products for aren't necessarily connected to just what they got to pay for, for the space they need to occupy. So there is a ceiling, not necessarily a ceiling, but it can't keep going at the trajectory it's going at right now. I agree. All of the fundamental data suggests that it's a hot, hot, hot asset class and will continue to be for a number of years. But I do have some hesitancy just that there are, with all this stuff, and I, you, know, you see it in every cycle, on every asset class, whatever area of the, of the marketplace you're looking at, this drives dumb decisions at times, right? And so there will be people that just end up paying way too much for land and think that they can get a ray that they may not be able to achieve. But again, I still think at the end of the day, it's still a very, very good investment. I had with a, with a smite little like 2% hesitancy in the back of my head, let's say that way. I can tell you the counterpoint to that argument. I don't know what the opposite of negative Nelly is. Positive Penelope, I guess we'll call it. <laughs> uh, so I only had a second to think about that. I could do better. And the argument you hear from us constantly, because I, I imagine this discussion with other groups too, is that real estate costs, they're expensive, you know, expensive undertaking and definitely a significant line item on any budget, but it's not the biggest, meaning a 30% rise in industrial rates, which of course is quite significant doesn't move the needle all that much in overall cost for running a business. In most cases, obviously that's not true of all businesses, but I've had their argument repeated numerous times from a variety of people who all seem to know what they're talking about in that in reality, you could absorb quite a bit of rental price increases just due to the reason that there are larger budget items. Right. Yeah. No, yeah, you're talking like, like operating costs for the tenants, right? Like that's yeah. what you mean? Yeah. No, no, fair. And, I, and I've heard that too. When it was five bucks per square foot and went to seven bucks per square foot. People say, yeah, that's easy to absorb. It goes from seven. Now it's at 12. It goes from 12 to 24. That's now we're talking major jumps, but again, I fair. And I'm not an industrial expert, so I can't really speak to it. Again, I, maybe it's my lending credit brain going, oh, there seems to be a little bit of wishful <laughs> you know, thinking here. Right. So Adam, I was going to say his negative Nelly is more like he's speaking like a banker. <laughs> than anything, right? It's got to bring that caution into it as a banker. And then I think it's very, it's a valid caution. You know, it's like anything, but I think the market will have some equilibrium will come into the market. It's going to take a little longer yet before you start to see that equilibrium come into the market, but it will. And it might take until 2024 or 2025 timeframes, maybe a little bit beyond. And then you'll see a flattening of the rents or a streamlining of the rents and cost structures have to come in place or tenants are not going to be able to lease. And so I do think that you'll see that happening, but I don't think that that equilibrium will be around for a couple of years at least. Okay, Peter, I think that takes us to the end of our five key takeaways. Thanks a lot for joining us as always. I, you know, these discussions are great. We go to these conferences and uh, you know you learn uh, all day, but it's nice to actually kind of focus your thoughts and uh, talk it out with somebody else who's paying a lot of attention to what's going on. So thanks for your time as always. I want to thank as well the real estate forums for a, of course, creating and hosting the conference, but then also allowing us to do these after shows for the conference. And of course, related to that, Aaron and I are not going to do an after show today, given that these episodes are kind of like a, a 45 minute after show in and of themselves. But uh, we will see you all in the next episode where we'll have an after show. Peter, thanks again for coming on. Adam, thank you. Aaron, thank you. It's a pleasure having these discussions. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.